seem to aim at the same moon. It gives you confidence that there's actually a moon there. Also it gives you opportunities for skillful means. Because as the Buddha taught, he said, I teach one thing, suffering in its end. What he was really focused on fundamentally were processes and causes. What are the processes of suffering and the end of suffering? And what are the causes of suffering? And what are the causes of the end of suffering? All he and his contemporaries knew 2,500 years ago uh, was phenomenology, our experience, our feelings, our sensations, sights, sounds, tastes, touches, and smells. That's it. We know today, as we'll see shortly, that our experience, uh, as well as unconscious processes, all rely upon underlying physical activity in the human nervous system. There may also uh, be a transcendental factor by any name you like, God, the divine, the ground, the nameless, spirit, capital C consciousness. There may also need to be a transcendental factor to fully account for the uh, movements of the mind, particularly of conscious experience. Don't know. Personally, I think there is. But I'm going to stay inside an agnostic and Western materialist naturalist frame here. And inside that frame, it's very clear that uh, the uh, interaction and the co-arising, the co-relating of mental and underlying physical activity is really quite extraordinary. If you change the underlying physical processes through everything from caffeine to a stroke, you really change the mental processes as well. And as we'll see shortly, mental processes, thoughts, feelings, the flow of attention, what we concentrate on, what we worry about, what irritates us, where we open our heart, all that correlates simultaneously with underlying neural activity and sustained neural activity sculpts neural structure. So the flows of thought and feeling and desire and intention and attention and their underlying matched neural correlates in terms of neural activity actually change the structure of the brain. The brain is continually changing its structure for better and for worse. The only question really is, is it for better or worse? And who's doing the changing? So that's the territory here. And what I, in a tradition that highly focuses on causes, we are going to engage the causes of the causes. In other words, we're going to engage the underlying material, biological, neurological causes of the flows of mental activity that lead to suffering or to its end. And we will explore how to engage the flows of the mind, which is all we ever know, to stimulate and strengthen the neural substrates of wholesome states of mind and wholesome factors of mind. Because since, quote-unquote, neurons that fire together wire together, if you use mental activity to stimulate key neural networks, key neural circuits, key neural substrates, the hardware, as it were, well, over time, you strengthen what you want to develop and build, which gives us phenomenal opportunities, actually, to gradually change our own brain for the better and therefore our life. So uh, the exploration will be a about to engage will be about how to ground 
the Dharma and ground wisdom and ground practical self-improvement in the best sense of those words, ground it in the body, in nature, in um, the world, to come home to ourselves situated um, as animals uh, in, in nature as nature. So that will be the exploration here. So I want to show you a few images here. Okay? So first of all, this is an example of how as the mind changes, the brain changes. This kind of fuzzy image is a MRI, functional MRI picture of the brain sliced roughly like this, kind of through the midline. And the orange blob is uh, in the reward centers of the brain, down in the basal ganglia. Okay, caudate nucleus, the striatum there, and so forth. Well, that's a part of the brain that lights up, that activates, because it gets more oxygen. It's busy because it's doing a function. In this case, tracking rewards. It activates when people take cocaine, when they win the lottery, or in this study on college students who are head over heels in love when they've just been shown a photograph of their sweetheart. (laughs) Wing! Men and women alike, okay? In other words, the mind has changed. You know that feeling we get when we're like, oh, I love her so much, I love him so much, oh my gosh, just can't stop thinking. You know how that is, right? Um, Well, uh, we're doing that with our minds, therefore there needs to be some kind of underlying neural activity other than a transcendental principle, which I'm bowing to and then kind of setting outside the frame we're in. Other than that possible X factor, what are we left with? we're left with the movements of the brain, the movements of the meat, as it were. And so here's a person who, or in a group of people, who have you know, uh, thought about their sweetheart and whoosh, the reward centers of the brain activate. Okay? In another image, <clears throat> this was a study and the cultural context is relevant here, I think, that was done in Japan also with college students, the great guinea pigs of psychological studies, uh, because they'll do anything for course credit or 20 bucks, right? (laughs) Or the equivalent, but anyway. um, Anyway, this study basically was done in two stages. And in stage one, the students were told, and these were male students, that uh, there was someone else in their class, they were just entering a kind of prestigious institute, school, college, what have you. There was another person in their class who was wildly more talented, intelligent, and attractive than they were. And they were told this as if it's completely true. And so now they're in the MRI and they're asked to, first of all, how do you feel? And they report, I feel bad. I feel envious. I wish I was that smart. I wish I was that talented. I wish I was going to be that successful. Uh, darn, I feel inadequate. I'm ashamed. I'm less than that person horrible, right? That's what they reported. That was their conscious experience. And simultaneously, inside the MRI, parts of the brain that are associated with physical pain also activated. Because, as we'll see later, as the brain evolves, it builds more sophisticated, uh, more recent uh, capacities on older structures and adapts those older structures uh, for its purposes or uses them for dual usages. Okay? So the, phys- the, the social pain network overlaps with the physical pain network. Okay? Then in phase two, they were told that this person, this rival, had suffered a humiliating downfall. 
total crash and burn. Cheater. <laughs> How do you feel? Good. Right? Schadenfreude. Uh, you know, the opposite of mudita, which is happiness at the good fortune of others. This is anti-mudita, right? You know, mwahaha. Anyway, and the physical pleasure networks of the brain also activated as well. Social pleasure partakes of physical pleasure too. So there are a few points here in this slide. Uh, one is the ways in which, you know, as I say, uh, more recent uh, capacities are built upon uh, more ancient capacities in the brain. Second, it illustrates my real point, my broad point, which is that mental and neural activity co-occur, co-relate, co-arise, interdependently arise. Uh, and the third point in passing is that envy is an underrated emotion and factor, I think, in human affairs. Uh, okay, so next. So far I've shown you two slides in which there's a temporary change in the brain due to mental activity. This slide shows you the results of long-term mindfulness meditation practice. It was one of the first studies about this. It's fairly well known at this point. Sarah Lazar and colleagues out of Harvard did it. It was a very well done study because this information was pretty controversial uh, 15 years ago, or rather seven years ago. Um, what she found is that compared to matched controls, that long-term meditators, not perfect meditators, how many of you meditate at least one minute a month? One minute a month. <laughs> Pray, meditate, anything contemplative. Okay, good. You're in the club. It's all good. And if you're not in the club, it's an easy one to join. It's all right. Okay. Well, anyway, these were not perfect meditators, but they're pretty dedicated, pretty serious. Anyway, they actually had thickened layers of cortex. Cortex, the root of the word is bark. It's the outer bark of the brain, if you will. They had thickened layers of cortex uh, in three key regions. Number one, the insula. By the way, this is a very blobby uh, brain that's kind of expanded, so you don't see the folds. The folds are pushed out. That's why it looks kind of funny. And it's pointed, as it were, that away. So you're seeing, you know, it look like that. Anyway, so in other words, this is the front of the person. This is the back. Okay. This area here, the insula, is actually on the inside of the temporal lobes. There are two of them on either side of the brain. There's two of most everything in the brain, although people speak of it usually in the singular, and I will too. Anyway, the insula is very involved in the function of tuning into the body. If right now you just track the difference you know, between the warmth of air coming in and the warmth of air going out. If you notice that it's cooler coming in and warmer going out as you exhale, then you are using your insula. If you have an interior sense of your viscera or the movements of joints or the, the interior sense of the expanding and contracting of the ribcage as you breathe, you're using your insula. You also use your insula when you track your own gut feelings, because of course feelings are very connected with the viscera, the interior, the core of the body. And we also use the insula as a bonus for empathy for the emotions of others. So different studies have shown actually that as people increase their awareness of their own body, they increase awareness uh, of uh, they thicken the insula and they increase awareness of their mind altogether and they become more empathic for other people. It's a nice triple benefit there. So long-term meditators actually built neural structure in this region. They also built neural structure in this region which is prefrontal executive um, networks that provide top-down control including of attention. They worked that different muscle and because they worked it routine 
pardon me, they worked it routinely, it got bigger because they fired neurons in that part of the brain that performs that particular function, those neurons started wiring together more. Those neurons also started to accumulate more capillaries, bringing blood flow with oxygen and glucose and other metabolic supplies, another way that regions get thicker. Um, I should add that there are other mechanisms of what's called experience-dependent neuroplasticity, other ways in which our experience changes our brain for better or worse, such as uh, what are called changes in gene expression. That's the realm of epigenetics. For example, people who routinely practice the relaxation uh, one way or another, and meditation is pretty relaxing most of the time, uh, so uh, you know, we probably get this benefit as well. People who routinely practice relaxation have improved expression, unpacking. The genes themselves don't change but their capacity to do their work, to make a difference, changes. People who routinely relax have improved expression of the genes that control the stress response, that downregulate stress activation, and thereby help us be more resilient in the face of life's slings and arrows. That's another way in which regular mental activity actually can change neural structure. Okay? And then last, the third region up here at the tippy top, somatosensory cortex. They were tuning into their bodies, so they got a little bit of structure building there. But the two regions that really speak to our, our points here, building empathy and self-awareness, that sounds pretty good, and also uh, improving the parts of the brain that are involved in executive control, being able to exercise will, self-regulate emotions, uh, and so forth, uh, those also got a nice benefit from long-term meditation practice. Illustrating the broader point that um, mental activity can build neural structure. There are less dramatic or kind of esoteric examples, London taxi cab drivers um, who have to memorize the spaghetti normal streets there, have thicker uh, neural layers in the hippocampus at the end of their training because the hippocampus is a key part of the brain for visual spatial learning. They were having to learn the spaghetti snarl streets there in London, so they worked that particular muscle and it got bigger as a result. Okay? Now, last point down here at the bottom. Uh, the uh, blue circle people are the meditators. The red square folks are the controls. Uh, it's okay to stand up if you want to take a peek. If you can't see it, it's fine. Um, normally, we lose about 10,000 brain cells a day. That's not too bad because right now, inside your head, are about 1.1 trillion. All right. So if you lose 10,000 a day, um, you know, we've lost a few percent roughly by our 80th birthday. By the way, about 10% of the cells in your brain, about 100 billion, are neurons, uh, the little on-off switches that are uh, really at the center of the information processing uh, functions of the nervous system. By the way, a typical neuron makes about 5,000 connections with other neurons. So do the math, or as Bill Clinton said, do the arithmetic. But anyway, it uh, gives us about 500 trillion connections called synapses, half a quadrillion connections inside our own brain. Neurons are typically firing around 5 to 50 times a second. Uh, much of that firing is just noise. They're just firing because that gives the neural networks opportunities to send signals, which is to say information by increasing or decreasing the firing rate. Noisy networks are more capable of carrying information. I kind of like it that signal arises out of fertile noise. 
you know, form arises out of emptiness in a sense. But anyway, um, so even if a fair amount of that firing is noisy, nonetheless, realistically, in terms of signaling, over the course of a signal of a single breath, it's highly likely that at least a quadrillion bits of information moved inside your skull. Whoa. For me, it's really a cool way to relate to this material to bring it home, to realize that the organ we're talking about is trying to figure out the organ we're talking about. <laughs> and to bring it out of sort of concept down to, wow, that's happening right here, right now. I mean, at bottom, Buddhist practice is about an intimacy with oneself. It's about coming radically close to one's own experience and engaging and observing it secondarily in terms of particular contents flowing through it, like particular desires or particular reactions, but most fundamentally getting so intimate with the subtle granularity uh, in terms of, if you will, both space and time of your own experience that you just categorically start seeing through it. You start seeing its foaminess, its insubstantiality, its arbitrary, non-binding nature, and you gradually become disenchanted in it. You really come home. When you start to realize that your own experience is being, is the product moment to moment of coalitions, forming, coalescing, and then dispersing of hundreds of millions of synapses moment to moment, it gives you a, a kind of real embodied bodily connection with your own experience and also helps you increasingly realize, eh, it's just the movements of the meat. I don't need to get so attached to my experience. I don't need to crave particular experiences or crave the ending of other experiences, which then is a way to truly become freer and freer of being trapped in our own experience, which is in a sense, I think, the essence of the Buddhist path, to become free uh, of our own experience. We're in experience, but we can become increasingly untrapped by it. And appreciating the ways in which experience occurs as a product of, an expression of, um, biological processes whose roots are really, really ancient, as we'll get into a little bit later, can help us in our own path of disenchantment with regard to our experience and dispassion uh, in our relationship to it. Okay. So, before I went off on that little tangent, I was making the point that we lose about 10,000 brain cells a day. And this process that's called normal cortical thinning due to aging is associated with normal cognitive decline due to aging. Not to mention, not Alzheimer's, but walking into a room and forgetting why you walked into the room and having to go back to the original room to remember why you walked into the room you walked into. Okay, so that's normal. Now, take a look at the scatter plots on the bottom here. Uh, here the y-axis is thickness, and we have age here with matched uh, people in the meditation group and matched controls. And you can see the red square folks did experience normal cortical thinning due to aging. But check out the blue circle people. Where are we? Come on, you little laser. Here we go. Anyway, they did not. They did, their, they did not experience cortical thinning due to aging in these three regions. They used it so they did not lose it, which has lots and lots of implications for an aging population. So the takeaway for me is that our experience matters and what we do with the mind really, really matters, not just for moment-to-moment -moment subjective experience, but for the lasting causes. Remember, uh, 
We're focused here on processes and causes. For the lasting causes that our moment-to-moment -moment experience leaves behind in the structure of our own brain. There's a traditional saying that the mind takes its shape from whatever it rests upon, for better or worse. Based on experience-dependent neuroplasticity, the modern update would be that our brain, your brain, my brain, our children's brains, the brains of the seven billion other humans on the planet, this is also true for other animals uh, on the earth today, that the brain takes its shape from whatever our mind rests upon, for better or worse rests our mind upon, let's say, uh, anxious rumination or that grumbling case about other people or lashing ourselves with self-criticism or various cravings and addictions and drivennesses and desires, well, the brain will take a particular shape gradually over time. Those neurons will fire together relentlessly and wire together as well. And so there we have a brain whose shape is more inclined toward negative mood, to overreactivity to stress, to uh, increasingly habitual, addictive, or drivenness uh, patterns of desire and craving and clinging, which leads to suffering and so forth. Alternately, if we routinely rest our mind upon the factors of steadiness of mind, if we routinely rest our mind upon uh, virtue, uh, self-control, doing the right thing, taking the high road rather than the low road. If we routinely rest our mind upon a sense of kindness and care and support and good wishes for ourselves. If we rest our mind upon the healthy narcissistic supplies that can come to us, the love and care and, and empathy and, and good wishes and prizing of others. If we rest our mind upon experiences of strength and will and capacity, well, the brain will take a different shape there and it'll take a shape gradually of increasing uh, support for happiness, uh, more flows of neurotransmitters like serotonin, which increase with meditative practice, um, greater resilience, greater capacity to regulate oneself, to, to kind of be even keeled in the storms of life, uh, and a greater uh, sense of vision, really, for uh, you know, our own personal path of awakening and where it could take us. That's really our choice, moment to moment. You know, as they say in Tibet, if you take care of the minutes, the years will take care of themselves. For me, it's really more like if you take care of the next 10 seconds, because that's really what's within reach, more or less. If we take care of the next few seconds, the years will really take care of themselves. And we can gradually incline our mind, and therefore our brain, to a better and better place. So how about any questions or comments so far? We can turn off the recording. If you want to hear that talk, uh, you can get it. So yeah, please. You talked earlier about Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.